Well, hello everyone and welcome back to Cross Wires. It's James here. I hope you've all had a fantastic week. This episode, we're going to be looking at a console system that didn't really make a European launch. It was meant to, but a few things went wrong. But we also have, more importantly, a fantastic guest who's got some great experiences working in possibly one of the most iconic game dev studios from the 90s. Most of you all have heard of them, or at least played some of their games. So please, welcome to the show, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me. You're welcome, and thank you so much for for jumping in sort of last minute. So, sort of behind-the-scenes stuff here, folks. As many of you know, I'm moving. So I thought, hang on a second, I don't have enough episodes banked so that I don't have to record in the week that I'm moving. So, as usual, the RMC Retro Discord came to a rescue, and I've got some wonderful recordings lined up, and Ryan is one of those recordings. So, Ryan, before we get into the console we're going to talk about, do you want to tell people a little bit about yourself? We'll dive into your shenanigans in the 90s as well. Yeah, let's do that. So I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I, I grew up here. You know, kind of being someone who was born with the, like, I'm going to say the computer revolution, but definitely the home computing revolution. And just living near the vicinity of the Silicon Valley, I was just always around technology startups and game companies and one of them was Maxis Software. They were in Orinda, California. My high school was just uh, down the road from them. And uh, we would go by there after school. We'd ask for tours. We'd bug them. Um, they, they, and they were always so gracious to, to just show us around because they were always excited about what they were doing. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I always thought, you know, one day uh, that's that's a place that I would like to work. I mean, what, what every kid's dream in, in the 90s with video games to, to work for a game company, I think that's just something you always want. I, I can definitely relate to that. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to become a game developer. I'm going to become rich and famous. I'm going to become the next two Cambridge. Definitely <laughs> has not happened. So for those who don't know, maybe we should sort of, if you've been living under a rock or rather a sim rock, was that a game? I mean, I have a feeling that might have even been one of her games. Sim Rock, it sounds like. <laughs> there was, well, Sim Earth, which is kind of just the, that big rock. The yeah, third rock true. in the sun. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> what else did we have? We had Sim Ant. Um, Sim Ant. Sim Ant. Sim Copter. Oh, yeah. Sim Copter. Um, that, that's kind of where I, I kind of come into the picture. Um, oh, okay. I, 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 um, I'll give you a little bit of a background of what happened. Uh, out of high school, uh, I went to community college. I really did not know what I wanted to do with my life. And I was kind of just taking classes to just fill space. And I um, was working at, a, of course, a software store at, at the time uh, just to you know get close to my hobby. Um, and yeah, so I one day I just I got I was just fed up. You know, it was probably a bad customer. I, I just didn't know what I was going to do. So I um, I called up. Max's software, and I talked to the the front desk, and um, I said, "I just got the worst customer support I've ever had in my life." And I said, "I I would like to talk to the manager." And they were like, "Oh shoot! Like we will we will put you through." And they put me through to this guy. His name is Roger. I just poured my heart out there in that instant, and I and I said, "Look, you know, I don't know what I'm doing." I said, "I I want to work for a game company." Like, what classes should I take? What do I have to do to work for a company like you? And he, he asked me like a, a few kind of light technical questions. And he said, um, you know what? I want you to come down and take a test. Wow. And I, I, I went out there that, that, like a couple days later, and um, I went and took a test. And a, a few days later, um, oh, actually, I should actually rewind, actually. I did come clean. Uh, he asked me how I got his number, and I told him I lied. So, <laughs> so, not, so not necessarily the first thing you want to hear in a job interview, yeah, but hey, you no. know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I did come clean, though. I told him that I'd lied, and but he was okay with it. Uh, I went out there. I took that test. Um, I ended up taking a second test. I guess the, the reason why they wanted me to come down was is I had aced the first test, and they thought I cheated. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it was generally just like computer knowledge questions, like, you know, um, what is an AT infrastructure, you know, like all these little things about like uh, computers and peripherals and windows. And I grew up in DOS. So I kind of like knew all about making boot disks and, um, you know, how to like, you know, how do you get the most expanded memory and extended memory and oh, you know, the right ordering config system, the right ordering auto exec dot bat. And you've got the magic source to get exactly. Was it yeah, and, conventional memory was always the one, wasn't it? That we had trouble yeah. with. 
Yeah. You need that base 640. You need as much as possible. Otherwise, the game wouldn't load. And yeah. I think I, I even remember mentioning this to Neil was um, like when I think of the game was um, Wing Commander. And I yes. wanted that. I wanted the joystick, the little control in the cockpit of the fighter. And you had to load um, extended memory to get that to actually work. That was like what forced me to learn DOS and writing boot disks and stuff like that. So in any case, yeah, I, I ended up getting the job. I started off as a, a technical support for winter help. <laughs> um, I stayed there for until 97, uh, which was about when the buyout came from EA. Um, but I was there for a lot of the, those late sim games that were kind of a little more confused. Simcopter, Simgolf. Uh, Sim uh, Streets of Sim City, which was like this um, Interstate seventy six uh, ripoff. Um, oh yes, yes, <laughs> the, I remember the, that. The, its feature was you could load your Sim City uh, saves in there, and then you could ride around your city, which was yeah, that was cool. It was like something that no one else is doing. And that would have been what around the time that would have been Sim Sim City two thousand save still. I'm guessing Sim City two thousand was their bread and butter. They sold a lot of educational licenses that really pushed them through, but. Uh, they needed to get SimCity 3000 out, and that was becoming a problem. They didn't, Maxis didn't know 3D. Ah. Uh, that was their Achilles heel. They were trying to, and that's why they were playing with those games like Streets of SimCity. But uh, one of the things that as a, we were allowed to do was we could be play testers in our free time. Oh, nice. Uh, so I, I, we played, I played a lot of the early builds um, of those games. So things like Dollhouse, which later became The Sims, Crucible, which I don't think ever saw the light of day, which was like a Diablo clone. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, SimCity 3000 was a mess. It, it was terrible. And they knew it, and it wasn't going to come out in time, uh, and that's when they decided they needed to sell. Which is, is crazy, because, you know, I, I honestly, I think I remember two of the games that convinced me to, well, convinced me and my parents to switch away from Amiga, and I think I've told this story. One of them were, well, actually, no, three games. SimCity 2000. Because I had SimCity on the Amiga. I have to admit, I bought SimCity after seeing SimCity 2000, and so I was incredibly disappointed by just playing old SimCity on the Amiga. That, Command & Conquer, the original Command & Conquer, and Star Wars Rebel Assault, because of uh, just you know the FMV, the gorgeous stuff on that game. But yeah, Maxis were partly responsible for me ditching my Amiga, so I do apologize to all our Amiga listeners that's what did it. That's what got me to switch. Yeah, I, I always envied the Amiga and how the games looked and how um, like there was a different, there was a certain style that you, that was completely different than a lot of the, the local developers that you would see making games here. But I, I know I was never able to actually make the, the switch. I, I think, I think we, um, we'd actually kind of talked about this another time that, you know, there's a lot of European computing micros that, just never really made it over here or never worked part of my childhood. That's right. Yeah. Cause I guess, I mean, so obviously you, I think you had, correct me if I'm wrong over there. You, you had a version of the spectrum, right. but it was what the Timex Sinclair rather than the, and it wasn't as huge a hit when you, cause let's be really honest in that period, America was maybe, is it fair to say was probably a lot more wealthy than your European cousins, particularly here in the UK. And so having an Apple II or having a fully decked out Commodore 64 with the floppy disks, because we, we just suffered through tapes, apparently. Oh, I'm, I'm too young to remember this, but um, I know people who were. And there's so many like random little machines, like the, I mean, stuff that we've probably seen on RMC Electro, Retro, like the Dragon 32, for example, would have never. No. no it, the Apple II saturated the market in a way that I don't think it ever ha- happened in, in Europe. And, and it may be, you know, for you, it was another platform, but the Apple II was in our schools. Um, and, you know, and when the schools were done with them, they ended up as that, that you're kind of like your first computer because they would end up on the secondhand market. Uh, so, you know, every, everyone who's in, in my age group, group in, in the you know, North American, uh, I would probably, probably the same for Canada, I would assume. You had an Apple II. Here's a, here's a question. Did the Acorn Archimedes ever make it over? Or like the BBC Micro? It, it was never something that was on my radar. Because that was, you know, the Acorn. So my first com- school computers were the BBC Master, which was like the second generation of a BBC Micro, that famous system that, you know, was really gave birth to, well, Acorn gave birth to ARM. And then the Acorn Archimedes. Mm, that's correct. 
yeah, the, the later sort of revision. But we're, you know, in in secondary school in particular, the at least for the first two years of my of my secondary school career, most of our computer labs were Acorn Archimedes, and we started gradually sw- switching to Windows ninety eight machines when Windows ninety eight became more more stable than it was when, at launch. Anyway, that's completely beside the point. So. Simcopter, do you have any fond memories of that game? Because I, I have fond <laughs> memories of playing the demo, but I think from our previous discussions, you've got a little bit more. Yeah, so that was probably, as, as a technical support specialist, our most infamous, infamous of titles that we had. There is a, a feature in, that, in this game that spurred from uh, something that happened within the company internally, and it presents itself on Pride Day. And... On that day, you will see that there are the these little characters, and they are being their best selves. <laughs> right, <laughs> and okay. they will surround your your helicopter. And um, this was spurred on by someone in the company who, for obvious reasons, was um, unhappy with their situation and how they were treated. And they and put this little feature into the game as a uh, going away gift. <laughs> lovely gift yeah yeah now, um i can imagine i'm starting to get a picture here of where the time frame the feature and your role as technical technical support i'm starting to get a picture of what might have happened right yeah i mean people did not understand what was happening uh everyone's computers they they thought there was a, a bug you know and I, you would have to sit down and you'd have to explain that you know this was a thing there was a patch to fix it that was later issued. There was a, a three and a half inch floppy that we can mail out to fix it. <laughs> that's that's how it was done. We did have the internet, but um, we did have a disk we could send people to do that. Uh, you know, remember most people were using modems at this point in time, so getting any sort of patch wasn't exactly a fast process. Right. Um, we we were blessed with an OC three line in the office, but not everyone had something like that. So you know, that's why we still would manually write boot disks for their computers. Uh, we would you know, tell them line by line how, you know, how, what they would have to do. You know, and this is hard because, you know, again, it, you can look at it through you know, a modern vision and think you know, everyone's got some sort of technical knowledge these days, but not everyone did in, in the mid-90s. Uh, so you know, a lot of the people, and I, I don't want this to come across the wrong way. I know everyone's completely capable, but the majority were um, stay-at-home mothers who just wanted to get the game working for their kids. I always got a lot of joy in that fact, though, that, you know, I could help them and make the kids happy, you know, that they uh, could finally play the game and everything. Because you could, you could hear the excitement. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, and it's really interesting, isn't it? Now, you know, we flip things around. And now tech support is usually the kids calling because their mom's done something to Microsoft Word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it's and, and you know, my downfall of Maxis was such a shame because you know they were great games. Uh, SimCity 2000 still holds a really special place for me. But obviously, then we started to get you know, as you said, Dollhouse morphed into The Sims, which mm-hmm. again is an iconic game. It is. And to say, I don't know if it, are we still. What was the last Sims release? I think it was Sim, the Sims 4 was as far as... Well, Sims was. 4 was the last major release, but they have been putting out expansion packs up until, I think, one came out this year. You know, and they're like 20, 30 bucks a piece. So. Oh, yeah. I, I remember. And I think, do you know what? I think they are still at my parents' place. I remember my sister collecting loads of the Sims. So this was the original Sims. Expansion packs, we had like Hot Dates, Pets... Also, what else did well, we had loads of loads of the expansion packs. I'll have to dig them up at some point and see. Yeah, they usually have like a theme like island life or uh, and there's usually a new set of clothes and furniture and jobs and uh, skills that you can add in. Uh, so, yeah, it's been an ever expanding and evolving game, even with the, the engine that is got to be at least 10 years old now, probably way more. What what would you say then, Ryan? Would if you had a favorite text apart from the l- lovely bug inside of uh, Simcopter? Can you think of maybe a, a particular hilarity? We we definitely had all the tropes, you know, my drink holder, um, you know, the, those kinds of things. Um, I had one guy call in and uh, he needed a new manual for Sim Farm because his pig ate his manual. 
Um, so, sorry, but sorry, sorry. Can we just just walk back, <laughs> back a second? Hold on. Yeah. So okay. So this is a genuine farmer who's bought Sim Farm. Yes. Yes. And he his pig ate his manual, and he needed a new manual. I, I just I just for will forever remember that. My it's just the the irony. <laughs> just. <laughs> <laughs> But my my favorite example of this, and uh, I think maybe you'll be able to appreciate this one too. So one thing I should say is, I'm just going to go ahead and generalize. If you got a call and it was a man, they were always angry. Um, I think it comes down to the fact that the, the second that you have to ask someone for help, you feel like maybe you failed somehow, and it comes out and they will take it out on you. And you just have to smile and, you know, just still, you know, not take it personally. And roll with it. And this guy got online and he yelled at me for a solid five minutes. And I am not exaggerating. You, he, if you can think of the word, you know, he, he used it. Finally, he took a breath and I said, sir, would you please look at the side of the box and read what it says in the, the lower bottom corner? And he says, uh, it says it's for Mac. And, oh, my God. I'm so sorry. He had a PC. Oh. And. The game wouldn't load because it only had one format on it. It was either Windows or it was going to be for the Mac. And he yelled at me for five minutes <laughs> with the most creative and colorful of words uh, over buying the wrong version. So he bought the, he bought the wrong version of the game. Yeah. Wow. He did apologize but, um, and, and got off the line. But yeah, things like that, it takes a certain type of personality to be able to handle that kind of criticism and, and, and colorful language support people you know and i speak i think you know i it's my career history is mostly support i think people don't appreciate sometimes the staying power you have to have to be a support rep yeah i mean and i've had it all you know i've had as you said we joke about the coffee cup holder that's actually happened to me <laughs> like legitimately like brand new tower pc newspaper destroyed Asking someone to reboot their computer and not understanding the difference between turning the computer off and turning the monitor off. Yes. Um, many times. I, I, a, a significant number of times that happened while I was working there. Yeah, because, and I think that comes from just so many people not understanding tech. And, you know, these days when we think about laptops, you know, oh, yeah, just turn my laptop off. Right. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, my favorite joke, my favorite tech support joke, and this thankfully has never happened to me, was a call, this is someone who, Sent missing. My computer's not working. Okay. Why is it not working? Well, I'm not sure. It won't turn on. Okay. Have you checked it's plugged in? Yeah, yeah. I can. It's plugged in. Okay. Can you just look look at the back of a computer? Is there any lights on? Oh, I can't really see around the back of a computer at the moment. Oh, okay. Why not? Well, the lights are off. Okay. Well, can you turn the lights off? No, not really. We've had a power cut. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. This is this is a common occurrence in this kind of thing. Uh, I had done support for LSI Logic for a little while. They made the processor inside the, the first PlayStation. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, we supplied their desktop computers. And, you know, one of the first things that we would ask them is, uh, so, so what did you do? They always say nothing. The, the fact of the matter is, is they've always done something. They don't just generally stop working on their own. It, it actually was a very interesting problem, though, because in this particular case, it was a bad mouse. And the mouse was causing it to go into a boot loop. Like it would constantly just restart. We unplugged the mouse and everything worked. We, we never to this day figured out what was wrong with that mouse. But who knows? Maybe it was uh, early espionage or something. Uh, <laughs> oh, maybe. You know, and, and, and talking about all these problems with computers and, you know, and, you know, look, earlier tech did have problems. But in a sense, it does make you yearn for things that you could just plug into your TV and mostly they would work. I have to admit, I think I've said this on the show, I, I was never really a console person. Growing up, we we weren't allowed consoles. My only non-computer tech was a Sega Game Gear, which was a great system. But you know, we weren't allowed something like our gaming, our you know, um, TV gaming was done on a spare TV with the Amiga. So I never had. My friends had Master Systems, they had Mega Drives. I remember my uncle getting a Mega Drive for Christmas and bringing it round and i was so impressed with that machine anyway mm. that's not what machine we're going to talk about we're going to talk a, a little bit about um a system that was developed i think correct me if i'm wrong originally in japan it was launched right. as the pc engine 
in 87. Is that about yes. right? Yeah. Just um, a couple years after the, the Famicom, or as we know as the, the NES, or the, the NES, as I think you say over there. <laughs> yeah, and this was this was Hudson Soft's machine, wasn't it? This was the... Uh... You know, it, it's NEC built on uh, Hudson technology. Hudson had developed the, the Hucard format, and they had developed these processors, but it became a situation, I think, where they just didn't want to manufacture it or market it on their own. Um, I, are you familiar with the 3DO? Yes, the, um, because that was, um, correct me if I'm wrong, that was Philip, no, that was, that was Panasonic and then, that was a, Matsushita. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. So they developed the processor, but they necessarily didn't want to do all the marketing. And that's, they tried that hybrid. Um, they made one with Panasonic. Uh, they also opened up the platform for others to make their own version of it. So in any case, it was a similar situation for the, the PC engine. Hudson had approached them with this, uh, the Hukar technology and the, um, their processors and, uh, NEC made the PC engine. It quickly outsold the Famicom in, in Japan. Um, and remain, continue to do so, I think, for the course of its uh, its existence out there. Nice. And this was, just to be clear, this was this an 8-bit machine at the time? I, I think people still argue about that to this day. So it, it, the, the processor is the same. Uh, it's like an, a variation of the HC5, you know, the, the, your basic NES processor. Okay. Um, it did have a few extra instructions. Um, so it's, it's an 8-bit system. Um, but it did have a, uh, a 16-bit calculations on the on the graphics side, uh, but it still had an 8-bit bus. So it was more advanced than the NES slash Famicom, but it was still an 8-bit CPU, so it was still classed as... Yeah, it's an interesting one. And over in Japan, it launched as a PC engine, and then I think, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, 89... It launched as the Turbo... Is it 89 it launched as the Turbo Graphics, or is it... I believe so, yes. Yeah. It launched as the Turbo Graphics in North America. What is it, do you think... I mean, first of all, I love this this thing of Japanese consoles getting renamed as they go across to America. You know, again, I talked earlier about the Genesis versus Mega Drive. For me, Mega Drive just sounds better. I'm sorry. I, I'm really sorry if that offends any Sega fans, but it just sounds a better name. You know, I wish I knew what the thought process was in picking Genesis for North America and as to why they thought, like, you know, maybe it would appeal to the buyers out here, um, which actually is an important part of the, the PC Engine story, I think, as well. When, when they decided to, to rename it the TurboGrafx, they thought they were doing it because, you know, they wanted to have that 16-bit in the title. They wanted you know, to people to know it was like the next generation, even though it wasn't. It's kind of a lie, but you know. but yeah, yeah, it, it was definitely part of that renaming. We always got different box art over here. It was never like you know the infamous Mega Man box art. Yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, great example. Um, you know, and I think it's funny because it's like to me in in eighty nine and ninety, you know, I got my first taste of anime that I that I actually knew it as being something not from America, something from Japan. Even though in my my entire life, you know, I grew up on things like Robotech, a lot of shows that got renamed over here that were definitely made in Japan. And I always knew there was something different about these shows, but I never could really put my finger on it. And then one day my friend gave me a um, Bryce dubbed, <laughs> copied VHS cassette that, uh, you know, could, could barely play. But, you know, I saw uh, things like Outlanders and uh, Macross, uh, Do You Remember Love, all these these things and so japan was quickly becoming at the forefront of like where everything i liked came from and when this the system came out uh to me it was you know it was i thought it was just really interesting and uh, i wanted to be part of that because it was a different you know the huge let's talk briefly i mean i know you got some talking points so please do interject if i missed anything but the one thing that really always intrigued me was the hue card because at this time everyone else is using big bulky blow on them if they don't work cartridges now the sega master system did have a a cartridge option that used a very similar card system i actually don't know who developed it or if that was developed by sega or if it was related or not um but i always thought it was fascinating i think that came from the original i might be wrong but i think that came from the sg 1000 the previous console which i don't think ever saw a u.s launch but it was a japanese console yeah the first gen master system had the ability to read those sega cards and it lost it in the master system too yeah yeah so the so the hue cards as you said you know sega had something similar but i've 
you know, I've never seen anything quite like that because I, you know, I was used to, you know, when we look at the Game Gear, when we look at, you know, all the, the Nintendo consoles. And I, I still love, I was watching a documentary of why the NES looks the way it does in North America compared with the Famicom because they wanted it to look like a piece of entertainment electronics rather than a video games machine because of that, you know, the video games crash. And, you know, it, oh, it, it does. It looks like an old VCR I had. And do you know what? I have to make. I regret selling it, but I had a NES for a while. So I had a, um, a NES. I started off with, um, gosh, what did I have? I think I had an old Atari 2600. Oh, nice. And, and you know, it was even by the, the time I got rid of it, it was, it was pretty it was pretty old but by the time I first got it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, there were some games on there that I, I really enjoyed. Um, I ended up selling that. Like, you know, back in the day, we all made these mistakes. I ended up selling it for. My first um, Nintendo Power Pack, um, it had the power pad and the gun, and uh, it, but it didn't have the, the robot. It had, uh, it had everything else. And uh, yeah, I played that for a while, but when I first heard about the, the PC Engine or the TurboGrafx-16, when the first advertising hit, you looked at the graphics and it was just like, it was immediately apparent that it was next generation. Mm. You know, the, the, first of all, I mean, the sprites were huge like you never saw anything like that on the on the nest like you know where characters would be like you know it's hard to visualize but you know a couple inches on screen versus the whole screen you know moving and you know you could interact with them it wasn't just like a wallpaper there was definitely some great tricks that the nest used to kind of simulate it but nothing like what they were doing on that and the color palettes were just so much more vibrant and then of course like you said those little who cards they were so like Micronization, I think, was like the big thing back then, like turning everything getting smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, we went from eight tracks to cassettes to CDs. And, you know, then there was like CD singles. And I think everyone was just like fascinated with like how everything was becoming more compact. And and again, I think that's like you were saying, like one of the first mistakes, I think, that they made redesigning the 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 pc engine to the TurboGrafx 16 is they made it a much bigger system it's almost three times bigger than the japanese system wow especially when you add that that cover on the back it's huge because i want to say gosh you know it's almost as big as like a modern laptop like a full size like a power book versus the pc engine which was like the size of like a compact disc player it was a really small you know i've seen the pc engine in photos i have to admit i haven't seen one in person yet but again a really tiny console whereas the turbo graphics was as you said, a huge thing. And then yeah. that's before you start doing any of the add-ons, like, you know, the uh, Turbo, or what did we call it? The What was a CD add-on for the Turbo Graphics? The, 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 for Japan, it was the Rom Rom. Well, uh, that's right. Yeah. It's, yeah. So it, they had a, um, an interface unit, and they had the, the Rom Rom, which was just a CD ROM attachment that it would kind of connect to. There was a weird tax law in Japan um, about how you like computer components versus audio components, that kind of stuff. Okay. And that was their choice. The, the reason behind them choosing to split it into three different purchases to skirt sales tax. Interesting. Oh, because if they sold the C... Ah, I think... I've, yeah. Right, if they sold the CD unit as something that could function by itself. Yeah. Something like that. There, there was... Um, I, I, I'm going to be a little fuzzy on this, but it basically... There was different taxes involved when it came to music and for computing and, and those kinds of things. Uh, how they approach IP and in music is actually also a fascinating side story because making recordings actually is okay. And like they had big CD rental business for music audio. Oh. Uh, but CDs in general were actually a lot more money in Japan. They were like... 30 35 40 dollars oh, wow. a piece as in to buy right exactly this is why it wasn't uncommon that you would go and rent a cd and you would copy it and this is why things like the mini disc were hugely successful in japan oh because you wouldn't own the originals right this is fascinating uh, on a side note do you know the one thing i wish we'd seen this might sound completely random I wish we'd seen a mini disc gaming system. You know, I, someone on Twitter had posted a what if photo and it was like a PlayStation that used mini discs. And it was the coolest concept art of like something that will never exist. I'd ever seen, but I, I was, I wish I could give proper credit for whoever had that photo was, but well, um, I'll see if I, I can find it. it and, and li- if I can find it, I'll link it. But yeah, cause I, I had mini disc. I had net MD. 
mm. you know, like the, that transitional phase between yeah. <laughs> mini disc and, and MP3. But sorry, completely random tangent. Completely. I, I also jumped on that bandwagon, so I understand. But yeah, we're talking about the, the CD era still. Yeah, so back in 89, um, when NEC hit the market, they had a full game plan. They already knew they were releasing the CD-ROM before they released the PlayStation. That It was something that they had in, as part of the whole process that they wanted to follow. And that's why just a, a year later, maybe, maybe two years, the CD-ROM hit with the interface unit. They had a, a huge library of CD games over there. It, the whole thing was just really amazing. And am I correct that the PC Engine slash Turbo Graphics one of its biggest selling points, uh, and do correct me if I'm wrong, was how good some of the arcade conversions were. I was going to say, yes, I, I think so. Um, there's definitely also some controversy, uh, like games like Strider, which um, there is a lot of lore about how it was supposed to go to the super graphics and then that whole chain of events that happened. But I think really, what, it, it, what do you say arcade conversions uh, come down to the shmups, the shoot 'em ups, yeah. uh, the, the, sh- the arcade shooters? It's really well known for having one of the, the best arcade shooter libraries of all the consoles, especially for that generation. And its conversions are definitely, yeah, I mean, they're definitely better. Games like Life Force and, or Salamander, uh, however you might know it, Sidearms, yeah, Raiden, Raid 1 and 2, and then Raiden Complete. That is, again, as you said, it's something you just, for me, is synonymous with the PC Engine slash, you know, the Turbo Graphics is those arcade shooter ups. I'm, I think, uh, I just remember playing on my uh, retro pie, you know, a lot of the, <laughs> and I'm probably going to get this wrong because I'm going to sound like the Metal Slug gate. No, they were, they were, um, they were Neo Geo, weren't me? Sorry. Metal Slug is, yeah, that's a big Neo Geo game. That's a Neo Geo game. But for yeah, a, what, yeah. sorry, but you see, this is how much I don't know about some of the earlier consoles, folks. This is why I have people like Ryan on my show to, so let, let's do it. So what would you, what would people identify as maybe like their biggest known game on the Turbo Graphics? For sure. Box Adventure. Yeah. I think that, that game, mascots were such a big thing back then, you know, Sonic, Mario. And you know whether they needed one or not, uh, they had Bonk's Adventure, which was a bright, colorful, fun game to play. But I think what really captured people's attention, and I know it's kind of a meme today, is the promotional video that they launched alongside it. In the North American market, they did a lot of promoting to try and get unit sales. And there was a promotion where you could get free games if you spent X amount of money, you know, buying things. There was um, you could get um, all sorts of like gear, like fanny fanny packs or I guess um, duffel bags and uh, bandanas and all this stuff. But they also would send you a copy of this VHS tape with these, this Zach Morris looking guy doing the cabbage patch, <laughs> you know, looking at all these games that were on the horizon for the, the TurboGrafx-16. And when the first CD game was revealed on that VHS tape with its CD audio, it was mind blowing. I don't use want to overuse that phrase, but when you heard these, they were speaking like they were, there was completely intelligible voice happening in these RPGs and this amazingly orchestra scores of video game soundtracks. It was unlike anything coming from a NES that I'd ever seen. Yeah. Cause the NES had its, you know, it, there's something rather magical about NES music, but you can't ever compare that with the quality that you'll get off CD audio because, well, it's CD audio. It's, you know, even to this day, CD audio is still fantastic. And to do that, on, you know, for a game soundtrack and for, you know, real speech, because before then, you know, synthesized speech, okay, it it sounded okay, but it was never... I mean, for me, I remember playing some of those games like, what, what, what did he just say? What on earth was that they just said? There was always the, um, they, they were always experimenting with like sports announcers, you know, so you'd hear things like, you know, you're out, but it would be really, really computerized and, and kind of staticky and garbled and in, in the best kind of digital garbage kind of way. <laughs> yeah. In, in, in hindsight, I do appreciate the Nest music, I think in a lot of ways more uh, because of what the limitations they had to work with. If you had a game and I think like, let's say I think Mega Man or Mega Man two are a fantastic example. If you were going to be playing a level 50 times or a hundred times, that music better be good. Oh yeah. 
because <laughs> it's going to loop forever. And um, I think that's why some of those tracks are just so iconic, because we sat there with them and we loved every minute of that loop that we, we could get out of it. But uh, at the time, you know, to hear a CD score, it was just a different world. So what then happened with the, you know, I'm switching terms here, PC Engine, Turbo Graphics, but what happened next? Because once, you know, sort of a PlayStation era hit, so a PlayStation N64, we didn't really hear anything out of NEC. Uh, not outside of Japan. You know, some people will say that they were the, you know, their console business was a one-hit wonder with the, the PC Engine, and it really did capture a particular type of magic. I think there's a lot of socioeconomic reasons that that was the case in Japan. With the bursting of the bubble in 89, it literally had a stagnant economy ever since. They did put out two more systems, the Super Graphics, which failed to really capture anyone's attention in Japan or outside. And then there was also the, the PCFX, which has a very specific market that would probably not have gone well over here in America. So yeah, that that was kind of the end of the road for NEC as far as any success in the home gaming. So looking at now, the, the Turbo Graphics and the PC Engine still have a huge fan base, and I know you're one of those fans. What are you, what's happening for you right now? What are you doing in terms of the PC Engine in terms of Turbo Graphics? And I know you've got a new product that's literally just arrived as we were recording this podcast. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, as we're kind of saying, the the at the end of the line for the PC Engine, it kind of went down as a failure outside of Japan. I've I've been with it the whole time. Like I had a, you know, I had my my Turbo Graphics in, uh, in 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 grade school and in uh, in high school, and I have all these fond memories of it. But a lot of people looked back on it as being a failure and having no good games, and it was kind of just a you know a system that wasn't worth your time appreciating it for what it is and what it has to offer is really been a product of this whole retro game scene. Yeah. And younger kids, not even like millennials and, and um, uh, Gen Z's who are discovering it for the first time thinking, gosh, this system actually has some great titles to offer. Um, and fan translations have you know come out of that. And I feel like there's this kind of this renaissance happening for the PC engine where people are finally appreciating it for the system it was and not what they were trying to make it be. So yeah, uh, I guess my story starts with the pandemic. It was March uh, over here, I think, when we went into lockdown. I mean, when I say lockdown, you know, I think everyone's got their interpretation of what that means. But for the most part, we weren't leaving the house. Yeah, I think for those, um, that was March of 2020 was when... Lockdown hit the UK, and yeah, as you said, we at least here we were not leaving the house, and I think it, it certainly gave a lot of people free time. It did. Um, I had just started uh, a, a new job, um, a job that I was told that I would never have the possibility for remote work, <laughs> um, and uh, then I was told on my second day on the job that I, I could go home with my laptop and I could work from home from then on. <laughs> I, like a lot of people, I just had a lot of free time. You know, I. I finished games. I haven't finished a game in like a decade. Like, <laughs> what, what is this thing like, you talk I, about finishing games? I haven't. I, I I know. <laughs> I I saw the end of a game with credits and everything, and it was just so wonderful. Hang on, do you mean not on YouTube? Not on YouTube. No, I actually I I sat down and I played it, and I I got to go through the whole hero building arc and and finish that game. So. But I, I started running out of like ways to occupy my time, like a lot of people. At the same time, uh, that's when uh, Retro Gamer Store had posted some photos that he was going to make a clear shell for the PC Engine. And I saw that, and like a lot of people um, who, during the pandemic, had a lot of free time and too much money to spend, I, I'm going to buy that. Like, that looks like uh, something that I'll do. Like, I said, you know what? Okay. So I had just kind of gotten into to soldering, like, about two years prior to the whole thing. And I'm like, I'm going to build myself the PC engine I always deserve. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this thing. I'm going to recap it. I'm going to give it the whole Neil treatment, you know, the, the um, polish and scrub and clean and, you know, the whole thing to it. Did you have a murder gl- gloves? Um Ryan Massa, but <laughs> no, I don't. I don't have the murder gloves. I, I did have some. I do have gloves for handling the lead and everything, but um, not quite that intense. No. Um, although I'll I'll say that the, there's never a look like the first time your significant other sees you washing a games console. <laughs> <laughs> 
Very fake nuts. <laughs> I mean, you know, the amount of, I do have to wonder the amount of times, you know, significant others have gone to the dishwasher and instead of finding last night's dishes, they found the spectrum. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, it's, it's been that kind of a situation. So I started buying these parts and um, I started, you know, ordering everything I was going to need. And I started talking more and more to uh, RG, um, RGR Retro Gamer Store about, um, you know, was he going to make the stickers and the branding? And he's like, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. And I started thinking about it and I was like, you know, maybe I can do this myself. And I don't know what I'm doing, but, you know, let's let's give it a shot. You know, I, uh, I I put together a package through um, Bai, which is like Sendico, and uh, I started buying a whole bunch of parts from Japan, like consoles, controllers, cables, everything I would probably need for the PC engine. I probably could have got it locally, but it was just the thing I wanted to do. I just wanted to buy some stuff from Japan anyway. So I, I, I bought like a really nice like a bento box and some other stuff. But anyway, that's kind of besides the point. I got the controllers and I. I thought, okay, well, like, where do I start? I got some calipers and uh, started taking measurements. And then I was kind of like, well, now what do I do with this? Like, there was so much I didn't know. Like, I, I don't like making stickers is not like I didn't I've never made stickers before. I've never made I've never manufactured anything before. I've never had like done any of that kind of work before. So it was kind of just starting from square one, not even square one. I was like square zero. Like, I didn't even have the tools of mapping out this little inlay that would go into controllers and i finally got to the point where i thought like i had something i was looking for a um a way to test it i i I tried 3d printing i quickly learned that i'm not meant for 3d printing (laughs) uh i don't know how people have the patience to fail that much then i found a rapid prototyping company out here uh, in the bay area i mean i'll I'll go to name them they were noco uh they have a, um, a shop in oakland and they would they can laser cut things out of different materials they can do it quick, which was really nice. So they laser cut me this half millimeter plastic that had an adhesive backing on it in the shape that I, I gave them. And the first one was wrong. So there was some trial and error in going back and forth of adjusting the design, sending it off to them, getting it back. And pretty soon I actually had, I had the shape. Like I, I had it, like it fit and I was pretty excited. I, I had looked at some other places you know this whole time i didn't even really know where i was going with this i never had the intent to make something for anyone other than myself um it was always meant to just kind of be a way to personalize my console i i I really wanted this like vaporwave aesthetic you know i wanted like the lights and the blues and the purples and i wanted like all these different like little things going on inside of it so this was always kind of something i wanted to do so then the next thing was kind of like well now these need designs um so i I actually i've been working with uh, this guy and we went back and forth on on different designs for like stylizing them different color schemes that kind of stuff ultimately though after kind of like getting on different retro groups it seemed like people just wanted to reproduce the original i I made a whole bunch of designs uh that replicated the originals I never had to do like color matching before. So I had to get like, oh, what do you call it? These special like cards that you could use to like kind of color match things. Yeah, I know what I think I know exactly what, what you mean. Sort of like the, yeah. the, the Pantone cards. Yeah, yeah. there's a, a Pantone uh, color system. Oh, gosh, and that's expensive as well. Well, you can buy them secondhand. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they don't guarantee the accuracy, but there, there are things that you can acquire. I picked those up and, you know, was kind of trying to match colors and match designs. And I, you know, I did my best. I try not to be a pest. And that's like one of the hardest things of like, I don't want to cross the line of like, like self-promotion versus literal, like trying to like tap into the, the audience of like asking people like what they want. And I think it's always like a, a, a careful balance. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I took polls and, and again, the polls kind of just suggested people wanted like, the core graphics and the core graphics too, and these blues and the oranges and, you know, no one really wanted anything special. So I really wasn't too sure what I was going to end up doing, but I made the designs and then I eventually decided, okay, well now I need to manufacture this thing. It's really hard to manufacture something that you don't even know what it is. Like, I don't know what you call it. Like it's a sticker, but it's not a sticker because it's made of plastic. And I didn't want something that was just printed because I didn't want the design to wear off. You know, I wanted it to be as like as close to the original as possible. I had talked to RGR 
uh, he's located in Taiwan, and you know he had talked about knowing some people who could handle it. The option was always to have it manufactured in China. There's pluses and minuses that come with doing that. Costs are lower, security is lower. It's just you know the nature of the beast. I do have, now. I, I do actually have a little bit of experience with that because in the side of like working with this. I made these little Walkman designs. Oh, nice. Okay. And I, I put my shirts up on um, basically like an Etsy like service. Immediately got ripped off. Yeah, as it does. Yeah. <laughs> you put anything original anywhere. And, and there is to this day, there's a shirt on AliExpress and it says graphics gear vaporwave. And I know that those were my words. No one would else would have described it that way, but uh, they don't care. So uh, believe it or not, I actually reached out to a website called madeinchina.com. And you describe what you want, and then they put you in touch with people who can facilitate that. So I described in as best detail as I could what it is I was trying to make, and um, I got put in touch with some different companies and some back and forth here and there, um, dealing with things like minimum order quantities and stuff I've never dealt with in my life. Like I've never manufactured anything. I got no idea what it is I'm talking about or asking for, but ultimately got in touch with the right people. They helped that last mile of putting things together and, and, and getting it made. My goal was not to like make money. I mean, you know, it'd be nice. <laughs> it was something I wanted to do for myself. Um, and if anyone else appreciated it, that'd be fantastic. So I was finding a right balance of how many should I order versus cost per unit. Like realistically, what is the market size? How many people are actually going to want to buy this? It's a niche game system. I can't imagine how many people actually even want to customize their system. You know, some people probably want to keep it stock. Other people might want to. Uh, so I really didn't know like how, how big the demand would be. Um, it wasn't until I, I put it online for the, the first time and uh, saw orders come in. And the one thing I had never, ever even contemplated, which is just funny, was anyone wanting it outside of the North America. I was actually quite caught quite by surprise when orders started coming in from other countries. These are, you know, obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, looking at the, the different controllers, these will custom, so you're, as you said, but not stickers, they are. Stickers is good enough. Like, I, I use stickers. They're inlays, but they're plastic. I, I just jokingly, like, I'll even say in conversation, I never thought I'd be at a point in life where I sold stickers. Yeah. But, the, but that's what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> and easy to replace, you know, replace the original overlays on, on these controllers and just give them a bit of a new life. And, you know, looking at the, t- the PC Engine controller, it's an interesting little design. It's very similar to the NES in terms of its button layout. It even uses the same membranes on the inside as the NES. Oh, really? Wow. They, they fit perfectly. Okay. So, but it's nice just to have that refresh, especially if you are, you know, if you're someone who's maybe got a PC Engine. One question I forgot to ask about the PC Engine versus uh, Turbo Graphics. If you had a, if you had a PC Engine, so if you get a PC Engine from Japan, is it region locked? So, yes, there is a region lock. It's just they flipped two pins. Uh, so it's, it's fairly easy to mount a switch to reverse it. But, I mean, you can also do the same thing with an adapter that just flips the pins. Okay. So if you – because you said, obviously, the Turbo Graphics was a much bigger console. Do you find people tending to prefer buying a PC engine because of its size, or are people still wanting to own a Turbo Graphics? You know, because of the scarcity – I think there's a certain collector demand for TurboGrafx-16, and you know, there's being fewer games, being fewer conversions. I think there's just a lot more appreciation for it in that respect. Where in Japan, it was so successful that the games themselves are plentiful, the accessories are plentiful. The downside is, is unless you know Japanese, it can be a bit of a hurdle to get around that. Now, most games, you know, everyone knows how to play a baseball game. You know it. Even if you, you don't know baseball, you could probably figure it out without anyone explaining it to you. But RPGs are going to be a hurdle. Oh, I was going to say, RPGs, you really need to be able to read. Yeah. But otherwise, the two systems are actually, you know, they're an analog for each other. They did redesign the motherboard in the TurboGrafx-16. Uh, so it is physically bigger. Like not, It's not like they just put it in a bigger shell. They, they did change the actual PCB layout, which, I, again, I think is silly, but, you know, okay. The controllers are larger, but they still have the same face, uh, which is actually one of the things that's great about my sticker, because the um, to make the sticker, I need a, um, a, a die-cast mold that stamps them out, right? That's very expensive. You know, that, that, that cost $1,000, and that's assuming you get it right in the first try, and we didn't get it right on the first try. If we were able to circumvent it and, and you know, and, and make do, but... 
the nice thing is, is that for the, the PC engine, the original white one, the PC engine core graphics, the PC engine core graphics two, and even the duos all use the same two button controller and the same mold. So the stickers fit every generation of that console up until the last version that used a six button controller and it fits the turbo graphics. So right off the bat, I have the benefit of my stickers fitting about eight different variations of the console. Awesome. That, that's obviously a huge like cost reduction thing for you and also means that people can, you know, I guess uh, te- technically speaking, they could buy stuff that, you know, buy a branding that might not be for the, you know, originally for a machine. Again, making it by custom. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, what's just arrived is you've also started doing this for the Nintendo for the NES. Is that correct? Yeah. So... Uh, once again, RGR um, said that they were going to be making a clear shell for the NES. The thing was, is again, he wasn't sure what he was going to do about the controller. He said he may not be making his own controller for it, but Retromodding makes a series of NES controllers in different colors. Handheld Legend makes buttons in different colors, and you can put those together and you can make something that's, that, you know, they have a clear one. They have clear buttons. You can do different colors. They have pinks and purples and, and things like that. Actually, that's something I, I should also mention is because in, in all of that, I don't know what they, they, what do you call it? A focus grouping? Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, every time I try to do a poll and, and, and ask people, they all told me they wanted reproductions of things. But at the end of the day, when I, when I opened up my store and I put them online, my biggest seller was my Vaporwave design, the, the, this purple and um blue you know kind of just beautiful color yeah it's everything that like people think of when they think of the 80s and like you know with uh nostalgia and it ended up being my biggest seller and you know that's when i realized that like people want to express themselves also with these things so i went back and i i made um teals and pinks and oranges and you know just all these different colors and in a lot of ways the demand isn't as high because again, it's a niche system, but at the same time, I'm kind of surprised how many people want an Arizona iced tea themed <laughs> controller inlay for, for their PC engine. So yeah, it's fun. It, but it's interesting. You know, we look, we you know we jump forward to now and you got things like, you know, the Xbox design studio for their controllers where people go crazy designing controllers. So actually I can see why people would do this. And, you know, clear cases, you know, the NES with a clear case would look, I can imagine, looks beautiful. Yeah, well, the, the Famicom and the NES both look fantastic. And, you know, with, with, the, with the NES, um, if you've done one of those, um, the Neo NES, like, rest- restoration boards uh, with the black PCB and, you know, who knows what color caps you chose, uh, to really be able to, to personalize it, I think, you know, people are, are liking that. Now for for the yeah for the NES I, I did decide I was going to make some new designs. I I did make some that you know there, there's it's different because with the with the PC engine there was eight official consoles or so that used like I said they used the same controller and they all had a different design um, aesthetic to them. Well, there was only one NES, and so there's there's only one way it ever was. If you look online, you see people, especially on like Twitter, there are different creators who. Um, put their own spin on casting their own controller shells and putting little medallions and emblems on them. They're quite expensive. I, they're, you know, they, they're definitely not for the faint of heart. Um, I'm not saying their time and effort and, and, and skill is not worth it. Um, they're, you know, they're beautiful objects, but I wanted to make something that, you know, anyone, even without any kind of skill could put it in, you know, their, uh, their, their console and um, make it look better or different. Or, you know, how, I don't know if it's better is the right. Yeah, bring bring up per- again. It's all going back to personalization, but because as you said, you you didn't have anything to. Whereas with the PC Engine and Turbo Graphics, you had as you said eight designs to recreate. Your Nintendo stuff, your NES stuff is, I'm going to guess, almost completely custom. So these are completely new but inspired designs for for the Nintendo. Nice. And uh, I hope they bring to mind popular franchises that were on the system, but they will not be infringing on any no. 
IP. No, 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 no IP was harmed in the making of this, yes. of these stickers or this podcast. So this is fantastic. So I mean, we should probably say at this point, where can people go to actually look at all your designs, check out everything you've got for sale? Where's, where's the storefront? Graphicsgear.com. And it's, it's Graphicsgear on all the social medias. It, that's G-R-A-F-X. Uh, graphics, instead of the actual way to spell it. When I was picking a name, I actually, um, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Marilyn Manson and how and why he chose his name, but uh, he decided to pick two things that he thought were kind of this like juxtaposition to each other. Um, he, he thought Marilyn Monroe and Marilyn uh, and um, Charlie Manson uh, were these two yeah. popular figures. So back in the 80s, there was this really popular flash in the pan of shoes called LA Gear. And there was the triple graphics. And I thought, you know, if I join those words, kind of kind of capture that 80s-ish kind of sound. So I'm actually just looking looking at the website now, by the way, while we're, we're recording. And I love some of these these designs. I love the fact you've got the stickers, of the sticker, the decals there as well. So if you because decals go missing on, on secondhand consoles so much. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm, tr- I'm treading on thin water. It's an old system, and I'm hoping that you know, I, I definitely made some mistakes uh, about not trusting my own branding. So I, I've decided to, to really embrace my branding of graphics gear. I think what some people don't really see, uh, um, I'm going to go ahead and spell it out today. <laughs> so on, on my logo, the little controller logo, it's actually two interlock Gs. Yes. And, and after I say it, people are like, oh, yeah, there it is. So, yeah, the, my, my little logo is actually graphics gear or GG. And I think GG is fantastic because we all know it as get good or we know, um, know it as um, good game. Um, so, yeah, it's graphics gear dot uh, com. Awesome. And yeah, go and check it out. And I will say, and not to embarrass you, but if people are thinking, oh, here's a, you know another piece of retro stuff that I can't afford, I'm going to tell you right now, these are really affordable. Um, Ryan's done a great job of keeping these at a really reasonable price. Um, so thank you for that, uh, Ryan. That's- the, the biggest problem is the shipping. Um, international shipping is, is tough. I wish there was a way that I could work around that, but it just hasn't presented itself yet. No. And and that's understandable. And again, I can you know I'm you. I've just seen your the wood inlay for Venez. Oh, oh yeah. that's beautiful. Yeah. There's only a few of those um, I made, it, only because it was an experiment, and they look amazing. But it again, you know, it was a, a minimum. It was a small order. I, I couldn't get the prices down. They unfortunately they, they are what they are. But you, as you say, we don't we don't know how well they hold up in in actual use. That's a very valid point. But they do look, they just look stunning. So fantastic! Go and check out graphicsgear.com. Ryan, thank you so much for sharing your memories of Max's. I, I just really reliving some of those stories and hearing some of your experiences with how you actually got that job. Because that, to be fair, I've never thought of calling or pretending to have a bad customer service experience and asking to speak to a manager in a way to get myself into customer support. I should start doing that. That's a great experience. That's a great <laughs> idea. I love it. Uh, I think yeah, everyone always complains about getting your foot in the door and you got to be creative. Oh, you know, yeah. but if you're, if you're, if you're hungry, you know, you'll, uh, you'll make it happen. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, the number of times I've reached out to companies who've had, you know, I say who, who have generally good support, but you can tell they're, they're struggling and say, Hey, do you need some help? And nine times out of 10, we don't. In fact, 10 times out of 10 mm. at the moment, we don't for me. So, um, But, you know, there's been times where I've been successful in that. So, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Um, really appreciate yeah, it. And thank you for having no, me. My, my pleasure. So make sure you check out the show notes for this episode. We'll put links, of course, to Ryan's uh, socials. We'll put links to the Graphics Gear website. We'll try and put a little bit of information. I'll try and put some information together, uh, link into some resources on uh, the turbo uh, on the turbo graphics. I think Neil's done a video, hasn't he, on a couple of the um, the systems, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. Neil um, has done. I think he did a laser active and 
a full restoration of a PC yeah. engine. So yeah. we'll put those in there because they're always great to see. You can see how the thing actually came together. I know he's done stuff with the interface unit and the ROM ROM, so it'll be worth checking that stuff out. Make sure you head over to crosswires.net for the show notes. Visit crosswires.net forward slash YouTube for our existing YouTube content. You can email podcast at crosswires.net. Um, make sure you follow us on Twitter, crosswiresmg. And of course, if you're a good pods listener, do start a discussion there and watch out on the website because we are going to have a discussion poll soon. We really want your thoughts on a particular episode we're going to be doing so watch this space uh, thank you so much and speak to you next time <laughs>